Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 27 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm good, Mary. And uh, lately, I've been entertained a lot by some of the airline safety videos that are out there. Have you, have you seen the Air New Zealand video? Oh, yes, I know. Men There's some black. really, really clever ones now. And United Airlines, even just uh, just two days ago, uh, put out a trailer right. for its safety video, which I think might be a first to be teasing a safety video. But it just you know goes to show how popular they are becoming on uh, social media and YouTube, etc. They really are. These are professional productions, too. And some of them have millions of views. So I think they're achieving something besides just communicating safety. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Um, but before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we are all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Christy Negroni. She's a highly regarded freelance journalist covering aviation and travel, including for the New York Times. Christine is also an author. She wrote the book Deadly Departures about the TWA Flight 800 disaster. She's an avid blogger and a regular expert source for media titles. Christine, it seems like uh, you do a lot. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. I try us. and keep up with you, Mary, and oh with Max. God. I'm just trying to keep up with you guys. Hello, Christine. <laughs> it's good to be talking with you again. I think last time we talked was on Airplane Geeks about your Deadly Departure book. and That was I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago or something. We did. We did. I had a great time. You know, it's so much fun to just all sit around and talk about this thing we love. Absolutely. And we don't have to worry about boring people. That, like that's right, because everyone's interested. Party. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's take a look at some of the top PAXX news stories that are making headlines. First, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, well, they've been tracking an increase, a significant increase in laser pointer incidents. Now, Christine, you've covered this topic in depth. Why should we be alarmed about this continued rise in these incidents? And what could it mean for passenger and crew safety? Well, I think we need to be very alarmed. I have, you know, I have two, I have two strong opinions on this subject. One, truly a menace. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not to be taken like, you know, these events happen at the worst times. They happen at a very high workload phase of flight, usually on landing or can be on departure, but usually on landing because it gives the, uh, the laser, the laserist, an opportunity to actually find the target they're going to laze and then follow it as it gets onto approach and landing. So it happens at a very critical time in flight. It's very disorienting to the crew. If they're working with any other problem, no matter how small it layers on in a high workload environment, another task to deal with. And then there's the startle factor. So yes, I think it truly is a big, big problem. I don't think they are anyone's over stating uh, the issue here. But my true frustration with this is the laser attacks on airplanes is not a new phenomenon. And the FAA's um, way of dealing with it is is completely 
20th century. They're, they take this name and shame approach like uh, like 16-year-old uh, juveniles are watching the news and learning from it. it you know, they're, they're, they're using yesterday's technology to, to tackle, uh, you know, tomorrow's threat or today's threat. And, and it's been unsuccessful. They haven't even learned from their lack of success. And it's very, very frustrating to me. Max, you and Mary, what you have already forgotten about the use of social media in, you know, in sort of communicating a message, just just what you've forgotten would would take if they did took that tiny bit and used it in their approach of how to conquer this threat, they'd be far ahead of where they are today. Wow, that's interesting, Christine. You know, this is the same agency, of course, who has only just gotten around to forming a cybersecurity working group to improve uh, security on board aircraft. <laughs> They're a little slow in a number of ways, aren't they, the FAA? Um, you know, it's a conservative, it is a conservative industry. I get that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but you, you, you didn't get the Dreamliner, you didn't get the A380, you didn't get these airplanes by sitting around and doing what you did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- there there is there is the outlier in aviation and the F- FAA needs to be harnessing that, you know, that part of the business if they really want to make progress in terms of keeping up with what's going on. I think it'd be a great idea to catch more of these folks and uh, really make examples of them. I mean, I'd like to see jail time, actually. Mm. Well, see, that's where I'm arguing with you, Max. I don't think that's effective. I really don't. We're not. If you look at the statistics of who these people are, there are very few of them are malevolent actors. They're. They're the geek. They're the guy who lives in his parents' basement. They don't watch the news. They don't read the newspaper. They're a little bit antisocial, but they're not criminals. They're not. They're they're stupid. That's the issue. And in fact, one of the FAA guys told me uh, when I was doing it, the, sto- the interview for the story I did for Mary is that he was out at a you know, jetty somewhere, and there was an there was a you know guy with a beer gut talking to his kid, and they were both doing it. These are not guys who who learn from the lock them up and put them in jail. They need to be reached out on their level. And that level is like a Facebook level or a, you know, or a Twitter level, you know, where where people are actually going to learn. So I I, I don't want to argue with you, but I just did. Well, no, that's good, though, because that's a really interesting perspective. And yeah, I I guess I hadn't really considered it in that light. Maybe that's useful to make some progress here. Yeah, it sounds like, well, it sounds like new techniques are needed. But, you know, to your point, Christine, I have observed this also on social media where it seems like there is a real kind of division in what, in terms of uh, what people think should be done. I've actually seen people call for the death penalty. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? You can, you can do that, but you'll solve the problem one by one. Right. We we need, we need, I think, a more comprehensive solution. (laughs) Interesting. Well, Max, of course, this story that we're going to highlight on the site also looks at the increase in drones around airports and, and cites that as also a, an alarming situation and, and, a, and a safety concern. Max, I know that you, of course, do a lot in terms of both your podcasting and your work on, on what's happening in the drone sector. Can you give us an update? The FAA has recently released some statistics that are kind of eye-opening. Uh, this is reports by pilots of some kind of unmanned uh, craft around them uh, in in some fashion. And there were 238 reports by pilots 
of these sorts of things in 2014. Now, this year in 2015, they already have 650 reports, and that's just through August 9th. So the the problem is is accelerating greatly. And I, I guess similar to uh, what Christine has uh, mentioned, has described some of the folks who are out there with their laser pointers, I, I think it may be a similar kind of situation. I mean, these are folks that have uh, gone off to Amazon or someplace, uh, Best Buy, and bought a DJI Phantom, and they're out there with their video camera, and they're thinking, wow, there's a jet over there. Maybe I can fly up close to that and get some uh, some good finish. And it's an obvious safety problem that uh, is, is accelerating. You know, it, it, this... <laughs> I guess it's a story for another time, but it seems to me that it's coming down to just blatant stupidity for a lot of these folks then. It really is then, Christine, right? Well, I do think it's a toy phenomenon. It's a, you know, at the risk of sounding a bit sexist, I think it's kind of like a boys and toys thing. These are gadgets, like the lasers are gadgets, and it's just play. And and if you consider that that's the, and not, not obviously not the whole use of, of drones. I mean, there's great, you know, commercial and business applications for drones, but, you know, largely the ones that are zooming around taking pictures of orcas and, uh, and planes in flight, these are people who are playing and you have to speak to them on their, you know, in their, in their world, which is right. not the world that you traditionally think of in terms of information sharing or, right. or, you know, and that's, that's just me sounding old. I mean, because a lot of people think of information sharing in a, you know, in this new way. Um, and it's just time, it's just time for the establishment to get on board. Before something really terrible happens. Yeah, and that's one thing that uh, almost all the experts uh, will uh, will tell you if you ask them, you know, what do you think is going to be the outcome of this? And just about everybody says that sooner or later there's going to be a very unpleasant accident uh, as a result of this. And uh, hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully we can change the, the mindset of these people, the culture around it, uh, before that happens. I'm a little concerned that positions on, at least in terms of drones, positions of heart, positions have hardened because it's not like lasers. You can't, which is simply, you know, in the use when, when people are lasing airplanes, that's just, a, you know, that's just recreation. But because drones do have this multiple purpose, people who want to make commercial use of drones for uh, land surveying or weddings or whatever. They're feeling like the FAA is coming down on them hard and they're just trying to make a buck. And so they're they're sort of feeling like very galvanized against any kind of regulation over drones. On the other side, there's this, you know, the, the, the kid in the toy and they obviously do need to be regulated. So, you know, it sort of was bad, I think, bad planning going in. And it's created, I think, a, a kind of a difficult situation to work with. Max, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is a story that's going to play out over the course of uh, months and months. Uh, interesting to watch. Uh, there certainly are lots of uh, applications, very valid applications for uh, for these aircraft. Uh, but uh, the, the process of getting to a uh, state of regulations where it's safe and getting the public to uh, understand the safety implications, it's a long road, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I, I think we better move on to the next topic. Let's talk about airlines, airlines cramming more seats into airplanes. And some industry stakeholders, as well as the media, are beginning to flag new health and safety concerns. Mary, we've talked a lot about the seat squeeze from a passenger experience perspective. 
But what are these new concerns about ultra-high-density cabin layouts? Well, Max, I'll tell you what, um, our uh, RGN contributing editor, Seth Miller, delivered a piece that uh, I I was really impressed with. Um, He was able to talk to an airline um, that would only talk, of course, uh, on on condition of anonymity, but a major airline that essentially flagged a lot of its concerns about some of these really ultra-high-density layouts, and particularly uh, the concern that was noted was regard to the Airbus A320 option um, that essentially allows airlines to offer just a half galley and modular lavatories in the back of the aircraft and squeeze many, many seats into the A320. And um, the concerns were manifold. Uh, they, they were, some of them were quite basic. Um, the ovens um, are stacked deep. So now there's concerns that flight attendants will get burned as they reach back uh, to, in these half galleys to, uh, to do what they need to do on those ovens. The space is so crowded now around the lavatory area that there's concern about bumping into trolleys and, and there not being enough room for people to uh, go in and out of these bathrooms. And there's also other basic concerns like trash, collect- uh, trash collection because there's no space now left in these galleys so that if you are doing some level of even a, a, a basic service for passengers, where do you put all the trash? So these modular galleys and lavatories have, you know, kind of these basic concerns, but then there's larger concerns, and that is with respect to passengers with um, disabilities. Essentially, there are some real accessibility issues out there. Now, we already know that these, um, the lavatories today, even before we talk modular lavatory, the lavatory today is really tiny. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time. I, I, I mean, I'm sure you do as well. It's tough in there navigating in these small bathrooms. Well, the bathrooms have gotten even smaller. And if you're a passenger with, you know, uh, if you have accessibility needs, these bathrooms are very, very difficult to navigate within. And the option now that has been proposed by Airbus um, involves a tip-up seat for passengers with reduced mobility. And um, it's so tight in there uh, that this airline was saying, you know what, this is, it's, it's going too far. It's just, it's just not enough. Um, and so, so there's real issues for uh, PRMs. But beyond that, this story ran and then um, it was picked up by the very popular blog, Crikey. I don't know if you ever read the, uh, him, Max. Oh, yes, Ben Sanderlands. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant, but he yep. picked it up and he, he, said, uh, he said that, you know, we had done a good job with this story, but that we, d- we, we didn't mention the unmentionable, and that is the hygiene concerns, yeah. that, um, that it's difficult now for passengers to <laughs> wipe their butts. <laughs> Uh, that these modular lavatories are so tight that how do you even navigate that? And of course, it all comes at a time when passengers are getting taller and wider, and it's so, so tough now in some of these aircraft. What do you think? This is- <laughs> <laughs> I, did, did it really have to come to this? I mean, oh, oh, really? God, I know. I, 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 know. I like the, uh, the video I saw from uh, Airbus on these uh, SpaceFlex lavatory. Mm. Yeah, uh, and I guess part of that concept is is two labs next to each other, but with a, a movable partition between yes. them. Yes, 
that can be opened up. Maybe describe that a little, Mary. Yeah, so that was an option, and a, a couple airlines have actually adopted it. I believe it's Lawn was the first, uh, the launch customer. And this is a much better design, in my opinion. And this is essentially a swinging partition that allows you to essentially open up these two modular lavatories and give a passenger with reduced mobility the space that they need to use the lavatory. Now, keep in mind, there are some serious uh, horror stories out there of people PRMs on board aircraft trying to use the bathroom and, and, and being reduced to, to crawling on the floor to, to get to, to use the bathroom. That's not too so, embarrassing, huh? Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, it's not difficult to find these stories, and, and, and it's, it's pretty outrageous. So this original design that Airbus rolled out actually um, finally looked like there was a reasonable answer, and now it quickly followed up this design um, in partnership with Zodiac with something that just doesn't, uh, doesn't seem fair uh, to me, to PRMs. Christine, what do you think on, on reading these pieces? Well, I was uh, frankly shocked at how many, you know, at the sort of follow on from, from the, um, you know, from the issue of the bathrooms, but I I think I might've misread it because I thought that some of these issues that were raised in terms of the trash and the ovens and all of that actually applied to that very convertible bathroom. So I, I might've misunderstood it, but this whole idea about putting more passengers on and making everything smaller clearly has implications far beyond just the commercial benefits, but to the, all of the things that Seth mentioned in his article in terms of the, you know, uh, flight attendants getting burned, what's the effect of all that heat now in a concentrated area instead of dissipated as it had been in the, in the broader galleys. I do wonder though, whether the galley is sort of a thing of the past mm-hmm. and whether, you know, that if they're going to recapture that space then heck, just go ahead and recapture it rather than, you know, still try and keep a kitchen, uh, a kitchen with ovens a galley with ovens and putting bathrooms together like that but you're right about the you know you're right about the dignity issues the hygiene issues all of these things you know i have this theory that airlines basically are just trying to right size prices and the more miserable they make the passengers in the back the larger the creation of the economy plus which will then enable them to start charging more for tickets yeah yeah people will buy their way out of a hellacious experience it's true. And I'm, I'm already finding myself doing that, of course. You know, uh, what, what's frustrating to me is that these flights are so full. And oftentimes the option of that extra legroom product or economy, you know, a premium economy isn't there. Um, it, it's frustrating. But the hygiene issue, I, I thought it was an interesting kind of headline grabber. But it does beg the question, what what are we to do? It's already very, very difficult in these modular lavatories. I always find that when I try to wash, say, my hands or my face, you know, on a very ultra-long flight, I I make such a mess because there's just no room. Um, and, and, you know, you end up having to mop up all around you because it's just so tight and small. And it's just hard to believe that that space is getting even smaller at a time when we're all getting bigger. Mary, do you think this is a uh, issue for only certain types of aircraft or is, is this a narrow body issue or does it really kind of span all the size categories? You know what, um, with respect to the actual modular, you know, uh, galley, right now it is obviously a narrow body issue because that is largely, you know, what the low cost carriers are flying and that is, you know, something that you can 
you don't need to have a full service, but if you're a wide body, uh, you know, operator flying long haul, you, you do need the, the full galley. Um, so f- from that standpoint, uh, yes, it's a narrow body issue, but looking at the, everything more broadly, they are all trending in this direction of additional seats, modular lavatories. Um, they, Qatar Airways is a perfect example, you know, uh, very, very recently saying that it's going to configure its 777-300s uh, with 10 abreast after, you know, essentially having set a nice standard for economy class on, on many aircraft. It's now going um, much tighter, even though passengers are banging the drum out there saying that it is grossly uncomfortable to sit in these tiny seats, 10 abreast on the 777-300ER and, of course, on the Boeing 787-9 abreast there. Um, there's I can't even tell you the amount of comments now we're see, receiving on the site from passengers that are vowing never to fly these configurations ever again. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a serious problem. And, you know, as an airline, if you go too far down that road, it's difficult to come back. It is, but some of them are... Well, we have we have one example of a carrier that's coming back. British Airways um, has received such a torrent of negative responses from their passengers on the 787-8 uh, that they have declared they are going to try try to widen uh, the seats for their 787-9. Now, what this means, however, though, oftentimes is that the aisle then needs to be narrowed in order to make room for more seats. And that can uh, be a problem in and of itself because when you need to use the restroom and, you know, there's trolleys in your way, or if you can't even roll your rollerboard bag down that aisle, you know, it, it stalls the turnaround time. You know, it's just, it's a whole slew of issues um, right now. And they're all related to airlines, you know, having these high density configurations. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Well, uh, let's talk to Christine about her upcoming book. Christine, what's the name of the book? Uh, I guess it's going to be published by Penguin Books in 2016. What's the name of the book and what inspired you to write it? Well, the book is called Lost and Confounded. And I was asked by Penguin to write this book while I was still in Malaysia covering the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370 for ABC News. I'm their safety consultant. So um, this is essentially about the the disappearance of Malaysia 370, but it does go back in time to 1938 and the disappearance of the first, the total disappearance of the uh, first passenger jet, which was a Hawaii clipper that disappeared in the Pacific back in 1938. So it's really sort of a look back at some of the, the great aviation mysteries. Um, some of them I try and solve. Some of them I, you know, open the official investigation and say, does this sound right to you? Um, more times than I, I, I thought I would, I did actually say, no, this doesn't. So I think some crash investigators um, might be a little peeved at me from, you know, from the approach I've taken on some investigations, but that's what it is. It's a look back and, and, a, and a look forward. And it also will put forward what I, what I believe to be the, the, the operative theory of what happened to Malaysia 370. Ah, can you share any of that with us now? Uh, well, I can. I haven't. I haven't made much of a secret of it. I I believe that Malaysia 370 was probably 
an incapacitation problem. I believe that most likely the pilots were incapacitated by hypoxia, as was everyone in the airplane, and the plane flew on as a ghost flight. Now, it raises all sorts of questions like, you know, well, what about this and what about that? And the and my book will answer the what about this and what about that. I think I have almost everything explained with the exception of that power off 20, uh, you know, uh, about 50 minutes into the flight, you know, the plane lost power and then the plane mm. came back on. And that that's just still continues to confound me. But, you know, beyond that, I think everything else sort of fits into the hypoxia theory. That's interesting, Christine. Actually, you've jogged my memory because when you were in Malaysia, I remember you you actually blogging about this for flying lessons, correct? That's correct. I did. Yeah. yeah. And there were some uh, individuals that uh, did not agree with you in the least. <laughs> you know what? If I had a nickel for everyone who didn't agree with me... <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, you know, so the, so the full title then is Lost and Confounded, Investigating the World's Most Mysterious Air Crashes from the Hawaii Clipper to Malaysia 370. Would you say Malaysia 370 takes the cake, though, uh, Christine? No, I don't. I don't huh. think it takes the cake. And here's why. Our sort of memory is of recent aviation. But when I went back and I looked at the Hawaii Clipper event, which happened in 1938, I, you know, and at first I thought, truly, I thought, you know, this crazy conspiracy theory, you know, it just crashed, you know, it was 1938. But the more I looked, the more intriguing it got. And the more, and, you know, I truly am a sensible person, but the more I started to believe this was a cover-up. This was a cover-up going into World War II. And then, of course, if you look at that time period, 1938, who do we have to think about but Amelia Earhart? So I had to step back a year to 1937 and the disappearance of, Malay, uh, of Amelia Earhart. And that sort of, you know, got me looking at some of the theories there. And there's some interesting theories out there. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to do away with the official, you know, sort of the official or the, the common theory about Amelia Earhart. But her disappearance did play a role in the public perception of the Hawaii Clipper because first they had lost their you know, the sort of the queen of the sky, you know, with the loss of Amelia Earhart. And then the next year, Pan Am, which was itself uh, a flagship carrier known worldwide, you know, crossing the Pacific when no one else was. And then that disappeared. So I have to say that in that time, that was the Malaysia 370 for them. That was the gobsmacker, you know, how can this happen event? And throughout time, there have been more of them. Well, Christine, wasn't there some controversy with the Hawaii Clipper about the sampling of an oil slick that was found? Well, yes, there was a there was fairly early on, and this is what's so kind of creepy, Max, when you think about it. Early on, they found this oil on the water where you know where the plane might have gone down, and uh, they took samples of it. And it turned out not to be aviation fuel. Now, what do we think? Do, don't you remember that happened with um, Malaysia three seventy? The first, one of the first things they found were these oil slicks on the water, and they took the sample, turned out not to be aviation fuel. I think that was one of the first things, you know, sort of the first similarities, and I thought, wow. Hmm. And then the more I looked at the Hawaii Clipper, the more similar it was, right down to the fact that not a single piece of the wreckage was ever found. Now, the flapper on turns up, and I had to quickly rewrite many pages. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, but many, many, many similarities. 
That's interesting. Of course, one of the the arguments that uh, has been made today is that kind of in this age of ubiquitous connectivity, this aircraft should not have disappeared. Do you take a do you take any kind of position what a, whatsoever on the flight tracking issue, Christine? I do. I do. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Aunt Mary, that that a it's, that I agree with you on both scores. Yes, it's come up as it should. And, you know, and, and you look back and think, when did, when did we first start hearing about this issue on with it, when it was on Air France? And I remember I did that story for the New York Times in 2009 yeah. about how do we not know where this airplane is? And then the BEA issued this call, this recommendation for more frequent flight tracking. And they issued that call, I think it was 2010. Mm-hmm. And they listed a number of accidents where, you know, whether they were, would have been able to perhaps get survivors, the air, uh, Yemeni Air, I may get the name of that airline wrong, Yemeni, I think it's called, where there was one survivor, a 14-year-old girl, but they don't know if there was one survivor, would there have been more had they been able to get to the wreckage sooner? So, you know, we're not just talking about the expense of trying to find an airplane, you know, a year, two years, five years on, but also the loss of lives, the potential saving of lives. So these are sort of incalculable, incalculable costs so that if you think if we'd started in 2009 to come up with some sort of solution and we'd done it with some haste, we probably wouldn't have, you know, we probably wouldn't be spending this upwards of $100 million to search a huge ocean for an airplane. You know, that's, you know, it's not, it's not, they say it's not the needle in the haystack. It's, it, you know, they don't even know it's the haystack is the needle. You can't even find the haystack. <laughs> so it's. Truly, I mean, yes, yes, is the short answer to that, Mary. It's absolutely an issue and should be dealt with. And you, more than anyone, because you're always dealing with these issues of airplane connectivity, you know how it can be done. You know what? What was frustrating to me was when this uh, when when this tragedy hit. Um, we pu- we published a piece, you know, saying, look, in in an age when you've got airlines that are bringing broadband connectivity to their aircraft. These airlines are running out of excuses for why they don't have tracking. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a, a great big heaping antenna on the top of your aircraft to support, you know, passenger experience, then the, the excuses are, are done, you know. And it's sad to me that the industry continues to move somewhat slowly in addressing this, despite work on the part of IATA and, and ICAO. Um, the world fleet is still not being tracked that is stunning to me. Um, so yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I've said it many times. I would, would like to see a much quicker movement on this issue, and and it's really disconcerting. Hmm. You know? Now to throw a wrench into it, I remember when I talked to Max on his podcast a year or so ago, and I used this expression, which I I, I, I used it at the time, and I still love it. It just sort of popped in my mind, which is the swapping spit. Uh, a problem, which is that once you start opening up these airplanes to the internet, you really do, you know, you already increase the cybersecurity issues and they are very big. You may or may not believe the the scenario that um, Jeff Wise put forward in his book about Malaysia 370, Mm -hmm. but you can't argue that it's possible. It might not have happened, but it is possible. And that, and you, uh, you know, and you've also written about it, Mary, about this access to the E&E Bay. So you do have these issues of, you know, sort of messing around with the electronic innards. 
Yeah, you do. And of course, it brings us back uh, to the FAA is, you know, finally addressing it. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, taken them uh, long enough, but they do have a task force and those uh, those recommendations are going to be delivered in uh, summer of next year. So here's hoping we can, uh, you know, get some comfort there. But uh, but yeah, it is a very, very real threat. Um, well, unfortunately, because I could talk to Christine all bloody day, uh, we're rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our many listeners, and remember, you can find us online at RomeGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Romeo Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Girl, and remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. Now we have a number of uh, very, very interesting folks sharing on that around the world. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions, and I'd like to thank Christine for being our guest. Christine, where can listeners find you at? Well, I write the blog Flying Lessons, and that's at christinegroni.blogspot.com. And I'm so happy to talk to you and Max. It's always great fun. So thank you so much for inviting me on. Always a lot of fun talking with you, Christine. We really look forward to your book. Yeah. Thank you. So with that, we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 